Hello and welcome to the Soccer ESQ Podcast. My name is Mickey Turner. You can find me online at Turner ESQ on Twitter. I'm also a contributor to The Athletic and Sounder at Heart, and I also run my own website, SoccerESQ.com. The two newest MLS expansion teams continue their preparations for the 2020 season. Nashville SC in particular have been in the news recently with reports that their season ticket sales are lagging their expansion brethren in Miami, as well as recent entrants to MLS such as Atlanta United and Minnesota United. There are also concerns about the roster build of the team and the stadium plans, which have them building a 30,000-seat stadium, though those have been beset by lawsuits and the usual political problems. To discuss the news coming out of Nashville, I called up Ten Sullivan of Club and Country, a site dedicated to all things Nashville SC, to check on the progress of the team, to see if there's any cause for concern in light of these reports, and where he sees the team going as they prepare for the 2020 season. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, joining me now is Ken Sullivan from uh, Club and Country, uh, based out of Nashville, at least most of the time. Uh, he covers uh, Nashville SC um, and uh, various other uh, things in the soccer world and elsewhere. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So first, uh, you know, for, uh, my listeners who may not be as familiar, uh, with, uh, with you, uh, just, I just want to get a brief kind of background on, uh, how you got into soccer coverage and, you know, kind of your, uh, your, your background overall. Yeah. So I, uh, I am a sports writer by trade. I know there are not a ton of them in the soccer writing world because it's not an easy way to make money, but, um, I moved to Nashville a few years ago, kind of as the uh, NPSL squad at Nashville was getting started, and that's kind of how I got into writing about them. I got into soccer originally um, in college. I, I went to a lot of University of Michigan soccer games just because that was uh, it was an available free sporting event if you were a student. I really got into it, and the 2006 World Cup really solidified uh, a lot of my interest in soccer. And then I think a lot of people probably started writing about soccer after the failure to make the 2018 World Cup, and that was kind of how I got started writing about it at, on a serious level and kind of progressed from writing mostly kind of idea-based things about the men's national team to when National SC became a USL squad, there was basically nobody writing about it, so I started writing about it. Um, as somebody who is a, a beat reporter by trade, I, I became basically the primary beat reporter on the on the National SC beat, and uh, a couple years later, here I am, still writing about it, and pretty much only writing about Nashville SC nowadays. Don't have a ton of time to write about men's national team at all anymore, but it's something that if I do have time, I'd like to get back into a little bit too. Yeah, I'm, there will be no shortage of that going on. Uh, they're, they're actually meeting right now. The, the U.S. Soccer Federation have just concluded their board meetings, and there's been a lot of controversy, uh, which is uh, a subject for a different podcast uh, maybe later on. Uh, but... Uh, your website, uh, Club and Country Podcast, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, what you're uh, doing specifically with that. Yeah, so I, I write, I'm basically a beat reporter for Nashville SC at this point, um, you know, doing all the sorts of things that you'd expect from a beat writer from writing features and all, all things like that and, uh, you know, doing the press conferences, covering the games from that perspective. On um, podcast wise, I, uh, I'm a member of the Pharmaceutical Soccer Podcast. I don't have my own dedicated podcast, but um, if, you, if you check out the Pharmaceutical Soccer Podcast, uh, a few of my good friends who are who are more fan oriented, they have me on as kind of their expert voice. Um, jokes on them, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> they have me on as their expert voice to to talk a little bit more seriously on their podcast. So that's a pretty good time too. 
All right. Well, let, let's get into it and, and talk a little bit about Nashville SC. As uh, as most know who are MLS uh, followers, uh, they are scared, set to come into the league here in 2020, uh, assuming there's not a, uh, a player strike uh, and they're able to get a CBA done. Again, that's a different podcast for a different time. Um, and I wanted to uh, first, for those who didn't, don't know a lot about the history of uh, Nashville SC, uh, they obviously uh, you know came to prominence, I guess, um, as a USL side prior to their pursuit for MLS. But I was I just wanted to get a little bit of uh, the history of, of Nashville as a, a USL side. Um, they're still relatively new, I guess, as far as uh, you know, uh, professional soccer goes in the in the in the country. Yeah, so it was actually started as a, a supporter-owned team in the NPSL. Uh, over time, they decided they wanted to pursue kind of bigger leagues. I think a lot of NPSL teams, other than your, your Detroit cities, your Chattanooga's really desire to be in, in USL and MLS. So a, a larger ownership group kind of bought in to pursue the USL. They successfully pursued that. And actually, even before the USL team ever took the field, only their PDL team had taken the field at the time that Nashville was granted an MLS franchise. So I know that's a thing that's a sticking point for a lot of the people who, who get up in arms about what we're going to be talking about in a little while yeah. is that they, they never played a professional game before being granted an MLS franchise. And uh, the big part of, of getting the MLS franchise was having a very wealthy owner buy in and um, per MLS and I believe U.S. soccer rules buying more than half the team. That's John Ingram. He's a guy who is a passionate soccer guy who bought in and, and wanted to pursue the major league soccer dream and said, if we don't get the MLS bid, we're just going to focus on putting together the best USL side we can. Obviously the MLS side is coming to fruition and I guess the rest is history or history to be written. So, yeah. And uh, just before we move into the MLS uh, stuff, uh, uh, how would you characterize uh, their uh, existence in USL? Uh, when, if I don't have the year they came in off the top of my head, it's only been like two or three years. Yeah. It's been, it's been two years. So they, they were, a playoff team, both of the years of their existence in the USL, um, they've had a basically a pretty consistent uh, set of players. The coaching staff remained the same over the past couple of years. It's Gary Smith, who obviously uh, is, has MLS history. He was the championship winning coach in 2010 with the Colorado Rapids. One of the most infamous the, MLS seasons yeah, ever. Huh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And some of the players on this team are guys who played with him uh, on that 2010 team. Um, goalkeeper Matt Pickens, who ended up being the USL's Gold Gloves winner uh, was the starting keeper for those Rapids. Defender Kosuke Kimura was a guy who uh, he's like a thousand years old, but still running like, around like he's 22 or whatever <laughs> at right back. So, so there is a pretty strong connection to those Rapids over the over the course of the time, and it's just been uh, you know it, I think fans were disappointed because this season the team did spend a bit more money to bring in some talent, uh, brought in a couple of U, uh, MLS loanies. Uh, at the center back position and, and did manage to come in second in the Eastern Conference, but uh, fell in, in the conference semifinals. And, and I think people kind of had a, a USL title or bust attitude about this year, knowing that it was going to be the last year of USL and are disappointed it didn't work out. But I think, you know, when you look at single elimination soccer, it's going to be what it is. So yeah. I think a lot of people are understanding of that as well. Yeah, and that actually kind of mirrors what uh, Cincinnati was going through as they were coming through uh, um, USL and then, then their mm-hmm. last year. Uh, before they went to MLS, they had a, a fairly high-priced team, uh, and but weren't able to you know bring it home. But now on to bigger and better things um, in MLS. And speaking of which, uh, 
there's been a lot of uh, news uh, recently about uh, Nashville's bid uh, and their preparation <coughs> preparation, excuse me, for uh, MLS. Uh, before we get into that, I wanted to you know talk a little bit about their pursuit of MLS. Uh, you know, within the last I guess eighteen months, uh, they they got the bid in 2018. Yeah, I believe. it was December. It was December 20th of 2017. 2017. So almost two years ago. Two two years and less than two years ago, I guess. Yeah, and and. The bid, I, I don't want to say it came out of nowhere because they obviously applied with everybody else with the, uh, the infamous 12 cities that, um, you know, put together presentations for, uh, MLS expansion. But, uh, it's fair to say it, it, it kind of, they kind of shot up from the ranks, um, especially, uh, given the fact that their, uh, their stadium proposal really kind of just, you know, uh, got approved in what I would say is kind of record fashion um, as far as those those uh, deals are, are concerned. Um, they Let's talk a little bit about how that uh, stadium deal came to fruition before the problem started uh, with the old mayor, who is no longer there, uh, which we'll get into, and the council approving a deal uh, at the uh, where the fairgrounds currently sit. Uh, just curious your thoughts on, on how they progressed that and uh, whether you were surprised that it got done in such a, uh, a timely fashion. Yeah, a, a big part of it was uh, John Ingram, who is the owner of the team, the majority owner of the team at least, uh, is the Ingram Industries is, is his core business. It's a family business that he's kind of the scion of, and it's uh, include, included among its, its very broad portfolio is, is some real estate stuff. So he kind of had uh, some knowledge of how to work within these things to get uh, – you know, council resolutions passed and have who to work with to get some of these things to, to work out. And so he kind of had the, that institutional knowledge that really helped out. And so what happened was eventually uh, the uh, national government has been kind of looking into uh, some redevelopment at the state fairgrounds so that it would not be used uh, as sparingly as it is. It's a big empty city property a lot of the time, and they wanted to, to make sure that it was getting more use and putting a uh, an athletic stadium is something that they've been interested in for a while. So certainly there were a couple pieces that, that kind of greased the wheels a little bit to make it a little bit easier to make this all happen. Um, as soon as the MLS bid was kind of a realistic possibility, things really started getting into the works. And they they had a, a provisional approval from MLS for an MLS franchise, you know, contingent upon the stadium being approved and built. And that's something that as soon as that happened, it kind of made both sides say, okay, this is really going to happen. And that really got the ball rolling down the hill a little bit. It got approved through the Metro Council. Uh, there were some challenges uh, in the Metro Council. There were a couple of uh, council members, one of whom is now the mayor. I'm sure we'll be mm-hmm. talking about that in a moment as well, <laughs> who, were, who were pretty staunchly against the stadium project. And that's something that, that kind of slowed it up a little bit. But it really did always seem almost an inevitability just because of how effective some of uh Ingram's people and how some of the council members were who were strongly in favor of it, including the council member in whose district the this, this state fairgrounds sit, which is uh, District 17 council member Colby Sledge. They were really pushing for that because they wanted that redevelopment. Um, they wanted that that parcel to be used more consistently, and that's something that, that really kind of helped it all happen. It got approved, uh, I believe, last August, so about 18 months ago at this point. And that's something that is it's been challenged since, and uh, We'll obviously talk about that as well, but for the time being, it seems like things have kind of been slowing down, but still progressing in the right direction in terms of actually getting done. 
Yeah, and and as you said, it, it was passed with pretty strong approval. I believe there's 30, 34, 35 uh, Metro Council members, and it, it got like 29 or 30 votes. Yeah, Is that I right? Think it got th- I think it got 31 yeah. in the final vote. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty resounding approval. It needed a two-thirds vote. It needed yeah. more than a majority vote, but it did get uh, – it needed 27 and got 31. So it was a pretty strong uh, approval. Yeah, and so at that point, it, everything looked golden. Um, there were, however, uh, some some rumblings of, of issues, as you alluded to. Um, initially, it started with a uh, lawsuit from uh, Save Our Fairgrounds, which is a uh, you know you know I, I don't want to call it a NIMBY group per se because uh, they uh, you know they had their interests that they're they're certainly trying to protect. But they uh, they had some concerns about whether the the stadium would impinge upon the the uh, the fairground slash flea market. Um, that lawsuit ultimately, at least that lawsuit ultimately didn't go anywhere. It was dismissed uh, quite some time ago at this point. Even though it's been, uh, you know, they tried to uh, file a motion for reconsideration. Uh, and I just curious what what were your thoughts kind of on that initial lawsuit from Save Our Fairgrounds? And kind of where things stand now as far as the legal challenges, because they are still ongoing. Yeah, I uh, I will also not use the term NIMBY, but yeah. I will uh, imply that I would like to use the term NIMBY, <laughs> I guess. But I, I would characterize the group in that way. Um, it, it is the, a couple of the principles in it are people who uh, kind of fit that description. So it's something that, that you look at and you say, certainly they do have their interests that, they're, that they really want to protect, but at the same time, there's a reason that this passed resoundingly in the Metro Council. Um, some of the legal arguments that they've tried to make that uh, the chancellor has kind of dismissed out of hand in the Nashville Chancery Court is something that you, you look at and say, there's a reason that this hasn't even progressed, uh, you know, basically at all. Uh, they've filed for injunctive relief every time they filed the lawsuit. That's been denied. Even when it's been remanded to a lower court after they appealed, uh, they asked in that appeal for injunctive relief and it wasn't granted. It really does seem like the, the judicial challenges to the fairgrounds uh, project are, are really not going to progress a whole lot. It's more about uh, the legislative and maybe executive <laughs> sides of things at this point that are, excuse me, that are a bigger problem. So that's something that, uh, you know, when you talk to the, the council members, it seems like they're still confident that it will happen. Maybe not on the timeline and, and at the pace and, and exactly as, originally intended uh, for it to happen. But I think the biggest thing that you look at uh, with the non-lawsuit, but also including the lawsuit challenges, are that there's a 10-acre parcel that is not part of the stadium, but it is part of the fairgrounds property as things stand today. Uh, that was, uh, I, you would say, donated, I guess, is yeah, yeah. granted as, as, part of, as, part of the, as part of the deal to the owners of, of the soccer team, which is the entity Nashville Soccer Holdings. Technically, it is an Ingram-controlled business and uh a lot of people say well you don't need to give a billionaire uh 10 acres of land he can buy those 10 acres of land from the city and the counter argument from those in favor of it is those 10 acres are currently accumulating zero tax dollars uh in perpetuity at least this way it will get taxed as a as a business property and you'll get a little bit of money out of it and there will be more reason for people to use the fairgrounds for something other than the state fair or the flea market or the occasional other types of events that are held there. So uh, certainly you can see either side of you can see why it's being challenged and you can see why maybe it's it's a reasonable thing to have anyway. 
Yeah, yeah. There's definitely both you know benefits uh, um, you know to getting that land um, on the tax rolls, but again, uh, there's obviously the counter issue as you point out of uh, basically giving someone free land uh, to develop uh, their business on. Um, and just uh, briefly before we move into the the politics of it, because you referenced that, um, do, do you know where the lawsuits stand at this point from a kind of a procedural basis? Uh, uh, are they, as you say? basically just kind of going through the, the steps and they're ultimately likely to be dismissed. Um, and do you know kind of where that stands? Yeah, I think that it's going to end up being pretty similar to uh, what's been going on with it. There was a, uh, the reason that the most recent appeal uh, was remanded to the lower court was on a technical basis. Um, not all of the, uh, the complaints in the lawsuit were answered in the, uh, the decision given down by Chancellor and uh, so it's been remanded to her. She has a motion for uh, summary judgment coming up at the beginning of January, if I believe uh, is correct. Uh, January 30th, actually. So okay. there's a motion for summary judgment as as moved by the uh, plaintiffs. So uh, or by the defendants, sorry. So it's uh, it's likely to end up kind of in the same way that it has been, which is uh, you know there will be a little bit of uh, of discussion uh, more in the public than in the courtroom in terms of how it uh, plays out that way. Okay, so, yeah, it sounds like it's, it's kind of on the same uh, track as the uh, previous lawsuits um, to, to ultimately be dismissed and allow them to move forward, subject to the political machinations that may happen down, uh, mm-hmm. down the line. And one of the things, as you referenced uh, earlier, is that the same... Uh, Makeup uh, of the council slash uh, you know mayor's office is not the same as it was when this was initially passed. Uh, uh, the initial mayor who was very supportive of, the, of this project, uh, Megan Barry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was a, a big proponent of the stadium. Helped, I think it's fair to say, get that through. Uh, however, she is no longer there, um, having run into some legal issues, which I will let you uh, explain in more detail. Yeah, a member of her security detail. Uh, ended up being somebody that uh, Mayor Barry was having an affair with. Uh, they used public funds to uh, finance some of the some of the uh, trips to their affair. Uh, the, the, you know, some of these things that, uh, for example, she took a, a trip that didn't require a certain level of security, but she ordered it for the purpose of having, of having her lover essentially come with her. Um, it ended up being, I think, only fifteen thousand dollars. Which is still a lot, but fifteen thousand dollars. She was uh, she pled guilty to embezzling to kind of facilitate this affair. So she resigned yeah. uh, in disgrace over that. Her deputy mayor, David Briley, uh, had been pretty similar in terms of uh, the kind of the political stances he took on everything, including the stadium. So he was also very supportive of the stadium, but he lost uh, a re-election bid essentially after having only served as, as mayor for I think eight months. He lost a re-election bid. So now the new mayor is John. Uh, Sorry, I always mess this up because his brother is our, our U.S. representative. So it's John Cooper is the mayor um, who had been an at-large council member. Um, he was one of two uh, council members who were pretty always staunchly against the stadium project, the other being uh, District 12 representative uh, Steve Glover. So yeah. now, that, now that you have kind of an anti-stadium uh, voice in the mayor's office, it kind of changes the complexion of, of how the, the legislative and the executive kind of come together to, to make this financing happen that has already been agreed to by the 
by the council itself, but still kind of requires mayoral approval and mayoral action to make it happen. Yeah, and so I, su- I assume, uh, given his his anti-stadium stance, and actually, uh, let me back up. What what's kind of the basis for his uh, his opposition? Is it was it the deal itself? Is it the location? Is it the the ten acres? Um, has he outlined uh, some of the reasons for his opposition? Yeah, I think each of those plays a little bit of a role. A bit, a big part of it in terms of now that he's the mayor is he kind of ran as a fiscal conservative and he sees this as a, a $225 million investment from the Metro government that really can't be afforded at this point. There's been mismanagement of the, of the Metro's money. Uh, there's things like, uh, compulsory raises for teachers and, and police officers that have been, um, not granted over the past few years. So it's something that he's trying to figure out how to make all the money happen is a big part of it. And um, he's, despite being a real estate developer himself, is kind of on that, why give a 10-acre parcel to a developer? You know, you just, you know, despite kind of, you'd think that he'd come from a background where he'd be saying like, hey, may, maybe I can work this out my way in the future if, if we're just giving away parcels to developers. But I think when he was on the council, uh, the 10 acres was an issue. And now it's just a matter of kind of balancing the metro budget and figuring out a way to, to justify issuing these bonds uh, in a way that, you know, kind of you can you can justify saying, well, why, why are we financing this billionaire's project when uh, we're having trouble paying teachers, police, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it should be noted that, you know, the deal did call for uh, Ingram to pay back a substantial majority of the uh, the bonds that were issued. However, I believe uh, the city, our metro is on the hook if there are any shortfalls. Is that right? In tax so- revenue? Yeah, so the uh, the project itself uh, is, I think, $275 million. Metro is issuing bonds to finance $225 million of it. So everything beyond that is actually Ingram's uh, responsibility, and any cost overruns are considered Ingram's responsibility as well. So it's a matter of kind of the, the, the payback over the course of, uh, you know, whatever tax mechanism you use to pay these bonds back. Sorry, you're the lawyer, not me. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's – so. Any overruns are, are the responsibility of Ingram. Um, uh, the, the financing itself, the 225 million, I think is, is the, is, uh, Metro's only obligation. But if Ingram were to, you know, up and disappear, Metro's still on the hook for that because they've, they've guaranteed those, yeah. uh, 225 million in bonds. Yeah. And, but the rent, uh, that Ingram will be paying or, uh, on the stadium is supposed to pay a lot, um, uh, a substantial amount of that back. Is that right? Yeah, and there's a uh, ticketing tax, uh, an athletic ticketing tax that will also go into effect when the team uh, begins playing. I think it's only when they begin playing at that stadium that goes towards financing those revenue bonds as well. Gotcha. And and actually, that's a good point, uh, place to uh, ask about uh, the delays and how that's going to impact uh, how long uh, National SC is playing at Titan Stadium because uh, currently they were slated to play there until, what, 2022? Is that right? So 2022 would be the inaugural year of the new stadium. Mm -hmm. It was initially planned for a mid-season, you know, kind of the D.C. United or Portland Timbers uh, method of backload all your home games into the the, the end of the season for 2021. And then they said, you know, this is there are these delays are making it such that we'd rather say, let's start from the beginning in 2022. So that had been the plan. Um, at, at this point, it's kind of up in the air as we wait for some of these stadium things to get hammered out a little bit uh, budget-wise. 
Gotcha. And uh, what what what's the timeline? Do you think on when we will see an answer to the political uh, debate that is sure to be ongoing? Do you think we'll get something by say summertime, or or could this stretch into the the new new year, saying twenty twenty one? Uh, I would be surprised if it took that long. It seems like uh, Mayor Cooper's uh, intention of kind of just, I don't want to say stonewalling, but kind of putting a pause on all these things is is pretty temporary as he tries to figure out some of the stuff that, uh, you know, the budget shortfalls and other areas that theoretically shouldn't be impacted by this. But uh, it's a bad look to be spending money yeah. on the stadium when you, when you aren't uh, paying your police and teachers what you expected to be paying them. So I think it's more a matter of... Uh, Probably within a, a few months, it shouldn't be something that lasts much longer than that. Now, whether it is resolved positively, it might be a little bit more risky, but certainly a resolution should should be found. Uh, I would say by spring, probably. Okay. Well, that's at yeah. least yeah, yeah. At least we'll have an answer by that point because mm-hmm. I'm sure you know with the, with the team getting ready to play, I'm sure uh, you know fans and the league itself wants to know uh, kind of what's right. going on. Um, and so yeah, let's move on to the. Uh, the team itself and uh, some on the field stuff. Uh, so uh, you know, post MLS, uh, them getting the uh, the team, they they've obviously started building. Uh, first of all, would you how would you characterize this this build out of the USL? Would you say it's been similar to uh, at least as far as the roster building is concerned? Um, would you consider it more along the lines of Cincinnati uh, or Minnesota? Or something along the lines of what uh, LAFC has done with a lot of DPs. Obviously, uh, Nashville has at least one DP. Um, how would you kind of characterize it to uh, recent expansion efforts? Well, I, I would certainly hope it's not like Cincinnati. <laughs> I, I wouldn't imagine we'll see a build as poor as Cincinnati's inaugural year, hopefully ever again in, in any team in MLS. But um, it's, it's obviously not going to be LAFC. It's not going to be Atlanta United where they spent huge in the first couple of years to try and win. Um, I think at this point, it's you kind of look at who is doing the building, and that kind of informs how the building is happening. Uh, you have Mike Jacobs as the general manager. He was one of Peter Vermees's uh, top assistants when he was at Sporting Kansas City uh, immediately before coming to Nashville. He's a guy who has a lot of institutional knowledge of the league, a lot of a lot of institutional knowledge of how to kind of build relatively cheaply. You're going to learn that under Peter Vermees, even though I know SKC spent a lot more this year. Uh, they're traditionally been. Uh, more of a, you know, how can we get the most out of our dollar sort of franchise? And then uh, I think Minnesota is, is a closer one than Cincinnati. I would still say um, when you look at kind of the knowledge that they have of, of bringing in some experienced guys like Dax McCarty, um, bringing in uh, Anibal Godoy, for example, but they're also looking to kind of find not necessarily the next, uh, you know, Joseph Martinez or something like that, but guys who are coming from Central America who have experience uh, in other leagues, that that you can kind of augment your guys who have that that knowledge of how to play in MLS and things like that, and hoping that um, Costa Rican international Randall Leal, for example, I think that you're always hoping that a guy is the next Miguel Almiron, right? Yeah. But he's but he's uh, he's the guy that they're kind of pinning some hopes on in terms of being that kind of difference maker. He's a young, he's a 22 year old guy. He is going to be a young DP. I think for the first half of the season, they'll probably. Uh, sign another DP before the season, and then if they can get a third DP at the mid-season transfer window, they'll 
Sven Tam to convert Leal into just a Tam player rather than a young DP. That's kind of at least my perception of the plan um, from what I've gathered from from them. And then I think the other international star that you look at is Hani Mukhtar, a guy who's from Germany. He played for German youth national teams. He's currently playing in Denmark. He's been very, very, uh, uh, I guess, up and down for Brunby in, in Denmark. But he's a guy that the, the management at Brunby really loves, the fans really love. Just a matter of finding that consistency. And I think I think MLS is probably a comparable league to Denmark at this point. And so there's hope that he'll have at least a level of success in MLS with a team that's kind of built around him as he's had uh, playing for a team you know, in the Copenhagen area. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned, uh, you know, hoping that no one builds ever like Cincinnati again. Uh, have, uh, in your discussions and observations, uh, have you seen that they've learned, taken lessons from how Cincinnati uh, built their team and are applying those? Have they talked to you directly about that? What's your kind of sense of, of what they've learned from recent expansion teams? Yeah, every time I, I've tried to ask a leading question like that, you get a very specific, we are not referencing Cincinnati type of response. <laughs> you know, without saying it, they're saying we are not referencing Cincinnati, but um, the, a lot of what they do is, is they reference their institutional knowledge of, you know, Jacobs' experience with Sporting Kansas City especially, um, things like that, kind of being smart about how you spend your allocation money. And I think when I look at it, I see they spent $650,000 in, in allocation money uh, to get Anibal Godoy from San Jose Earthquakes. I look at that and say, maybe, you know, that's not quite as smart, but since we never know how much uh, allocation yeah. money anybody has, much less expansion teams, maybe maybe they just have money to burn. But I think they, they've, they've taken some lessons from that, and they've taken some lessons from making sure you have the right mix of experience in MLS, experience just in the professional game with some of the youth that I think um, Cincinnati had a couple pieces that I thought were really nice last year, but they didn't build around them properly. And I think that that's what, when you talk to uh, the, the front office staff of this club, that's something that they're really focusing on doing the right way. Yeah, and so that kind of leads us into uh, what has uh, been in the news in the last uh, couple of days. Uh, Sam Seiskel from The Athletic, one of my uh, colleagues, good guy, uh, was out with a kind of expansion uh, update uh, focused on uh, some other uh, expansion teams like uh, Charlotte potentially coming into league, but uh, had a note on Nashville. Uh, and so we'll kind of move to the off the field, uh, you know, issues uh, that uh, apparently are going on. He had a report that there have only been about 5,000 season tickets sold for Nashville's inaugural season. Uh, obviously that is not going to look great uh, in a uh, 70,000 seat football stadium. Uh, obviously there would be more than 5,000 uh, season ticket holders, uh, even if that uh, is accurate um, with, with other sales, but uh, that season ticket holders do provide a base of revenue and support for the team. So uh, I was just curious to know what you've heard from the front office regarding that number and just kind of their general sense of how the build is going off the field, cultivating a uh, fan base. Yeah, I think so. When I've uh, in the past, even before that report, uh, kind of inquired about what the season ticket number is, I've heard a slightly higher number. Um, it's not going to be a game-changingly high number. It's, it's you know within a couple thousand more season tickets sold than that. And I think, uh, regardless, that's you know they're going to try and fill thirty-eight thousand seats of Nissan Stadium. It's not going to fill thirty-eight thousand <laughs> yeah. seats of Nissan Stadium. Um, you know, if you, if you have six thousand versus five thousand season tickets sold at this point, it's not. It is a difference, but it's not going to be a game changer. So it is something that I think there's concern about, and 
Uh, I think looking at it, there were some mistakes made uh, by the front office during the USL time that has kind of led to some of this, which were they, they kind of completely abandoned marketing for the USL team last year, which led to a slight decrease in the, the USL attendance, yeah. which kind of, it doesn't really mean a whole lot in the big picture, obviously, that was why they did it, but it, it wasn't, it didn't provide a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings for people who were interested in, in kind of checking out this soccer thing in Nashville. So that's something that it kind of diminished some of the buzz that they could have had. They did uh, less advertising than you might have expected. And at this point, they're really looking at some of these big off-season dates to really build in that season ticket holder kind of base. Uh, they said that they have had a big push after the expansion draft and the uh, Atlanta United home opener uh, reveal, I guess. But the problem was that those happened basically on the same day. Yeah. Uh, the, the Atlanta game was, was announced on Monday, and they kind of built into the expansion draft Tuesday, so there wasn't a, a chance to kind of sell two separate events. So I think they're really looking at some of these other things, the full schedule release, for example, uh, a kit release, for example, that they're hoping will kind of encourage some people to, to come out and, and get their season tickets. Uh, it's something that I think they're still hoping but, but not necessarily confident that they're going to hit some of the numbers that they were expecting before. They've had a lot of trouble connecting with um, Hispanic and other immigrant uh, populations, which are, um, you know, you don't think of it as a southern city being that important, but there's a, there's a huge African uh, immigrant population in South Nashville that they've they really haven't had a, an ability to connect with, even though they have a number of African players on the USL team, um, and they have... Uh, several Ghanaians <laughs> already committed to play for the U- or MLS team. So something that kind of figuring out how to connect with those communities uh, is something that there has been trouble with. Uh, they haven't been able to figure out how to market some of that stuff. That's something that they're working on as time goes on, but it's going to be, I think, probably a work in progress. And I think from a perspective of, of somebody who's just observing it, it's going to be disappointing uh, regardless in that regard. It's, it's already kind of past the threshold of no return in terms of uh, whether it can kind of live up to expectations. So uh, they'll, they'll continue to work that. They'll continue to work uh, the, the Central American and Mexican uh, populations in Nashville, but it's something that it, it's going to – they're going to have to co- uh, come back from some of the mistakes that they made earlier in the process. Uh, there's been a lot of change in the front office in marketing and departments that are um, ticketing – uh, you know, the things that, that lead to this uh, sort of process. So uh, they're hoping that maybe with a little bit more experience in this sort of uh, top-flight professional experience that they can make some of those uh, inroads, make some of that ground back. But I don't know if they'll be able to make all of it. Yeah, and would you put that down to, uh, you alluded to a little bit uh, as far on the USL side uh, when they you know, reduced their marketing budget, uh, is, is that something, uh, as they transitioned into MLS, they just hadn't, uh, uh, increased that, that budget, uh, that focus, um, or were there some more inherent or institutional issues, uh, that haven't allowed them to connect, uh, with the, the communities as you referenced? Yeah, I think there was a lack of experience, uh, in knowing how to connect to some of those communities. Uh, a big issue the first year of USL was they did not have uh, a Spanish-speaking player on the team, so the uh, marketing department felt they didn't have a whole lot to sell to, especially Latino communities. So um, my counter argument would be sell to them anyway. <laughs> if you if you believe these people love soccer and are going to come out to a soccer game, you don't necessarily need uh, some, you know somebody who looks or talks like them to sell it. The game sells itself. 
Um, those are the sorts of things that uh, even from the transition to becoming a professional team from the NPSL side uh, and then the one year at the PDL side, they kind of didn't really have a, a game plan in place for how to deal with some of that stuff. I think as they've turned over some of that front office staff to uh, people with more top flight professional experience, it will get worked out. It's just a matter of kind of overcoming some of that earlier stuff. Yeah, and so uh, looking uh, looking ahead, uh, you know, part of Sam's report in the Athletic was that uh, there are some concerns um, in the league about you know obviously the season ticket numbers, uh, uh, but I've heard from uh, Nashville locals that it also is something where uh, it's it will take some time to kind of warm up uh, to the team, for lack of a better word, and that the same thing happened with the Nashville Predators. Is that a, a, a fair uh, characterization of of kind of how the city works um, from a sporting uh, perspective, um, or is that uh, more spin um, and just trying to cover up? Uh, what has been a lackluster, uh, you know, uh, start uh, as far as season tickets and uh, relevance is concerned. Yeah, I think I think there is it, it is somewhat fair. Uh, the Predators took several years to kind of build into what they became, especially two or three years ago when they made it to the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, that was when you really saw the Predators become like the hot ticket in town. Uh, the Titans had been kind of the, the number one show, even though they're pretty consistently awful. So they, they had been the number one show for a while because I guess the NFL rules the roost. Yeah. So that's the sort of thing that uh, the Predators managed to finally take advantage of. I do think there's a certain idea that Nashville SC, with some success on the field, or even just being able to, to put any sort of product on the field, will see some increases. The question is whether it's going to be enough to kind of overcome this early lack of uh, positive attention, I guess you could say, to to be where they were expecting. Uh, I don't. I know part of what they what the uh, front office has talked about is Nashville's a big walk up sales uh, sort of town. It's a big late purchasing season ticket sort of town, and both of those can be true without it kind of making up the gap that we're seeing right now. And I think somewhere between what looks like a worst-case scenario right now and what the front office would consider a best-case scenario. Somewhere in between there is what you're going to end up seeing come um, February 29th and beyond, and it's uh, going to probably take some success on the field to really uh, capture the hearts and minds of, of Middle Tennessee. Yeah, and uh, obviously winning cures a lot of issues in, in all uh, walks of life, and, and in you know especially in sports, especially in MLS, um, and uh, you know, USL attendance is not indicative of, of future success. Uh, us out here in Seattle certainly know that. Atlanta, you know, certainly is a testament to that. Um, it's just kind of the way that uh, sports works in this country. So I think that's a, a good place to end it. I want to thank, uh, Tim, you for uh, joining me. But uh, before we uh, take off, I wanted to give you a chance to plug yourself on the Twitters and uh, where else can people find you. Yeah, you can uh, find me at Club Country USA on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I very rarely use Instagram. Twitter's the number one place to go. I mean, you can find my website, uh, clubcountryusa.com. All right, perfect. Thank you, Tim, for joining me. And this was a great conversation about uh, where Nashville stands. And uh, we look forward to seeing uh, where, where, how they perform on the field and uh, if they get some of these issues uh, sorted out uh, as the season uh, gets underway. Yeah, thanks for having me.